And I want to invite you to please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. So Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. As I already said, and as many of you know, today is the second Sunday of Advent, the second week of our Advent sermon series, looking at some of the significant and really stunningly clear prophecies and promises in the Old Testament book of Isaiah about the coming Savior. Prophecies and promises which Isaiah made over 700 years before Jesus. The the divine eternal Son of God took on flesh, entered our world as the baby in the manger and dwelt among us to, to live, to die, to rise from the grave as Savior and Lord. And last week, Juan Carlos preached through one of these prophetic promises in Isaiah 7, verse 14. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. And so today we're going to learn more about this son, Emmanuel, God with us. This this son who in the days of Isaiah was to come. This, this promised son for us and our position in redemptive history who has already come and who is coming again. In our passage, Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7, there, there's so much here. There's so much here. We're going to spend two weeks on it. Uh, that's not a surprise to many of you. Um, we're we're going to focus uh, today on verses 1 through the beginning of verse 6. Then we're going to come right back to this passage next Sunday and look at all of verse 6 in verse 7, you're going to see there's, there's so much there. But, but, but I, I want to read all of Isaiah 9, verse 1 to verse 7, both today and next week. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, life-giving word. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder... The rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government And of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. So we're going to look at Isaiah 9 verse 1 to the beginning of verse 6 under three headings. See the darkness... The light and the sun. The darkness, the light, and the sun. So first, the darkness. And looking at Isaiah 9, verse 1, and specifically that opening sentence, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And you can tell from this opening sentence of verse 1 that 
This is a, a passage of prophecy of hope. But it's a passage of prophecy of, this, uh, of hope amid anguish. Do you see that? Hope amid anguish. So, so what is the cause of this anguish? Well, let's keep reading in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So looking at Isaiah 9, verse 1, the he is God. And then you have in the former time, in the former time, or beforehand, something that God has already done. In the former time, he brought. In the former time, what God has already done, God brought contempt or judgment onto the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And God did this, we know from the context around this passage in Isaiah 9, God did this in the form of the Assyrian invasion. You can read about this in 2 Kings 15 through 17. Well, why did this happen? Well, it was because, the people, because of the people of God's sin and rebellion against their God and against his word. Generation after generation after generation. And I, I know for, for some of us, maybe the Old Testament history, we, we've got it down pat. We understand where everything is and we're all the timeline completely. But others of you may be like me and, and you, you need help in some way. So let's, let's think about it this way, okay? King David's reign was around 1000 B.C. He reigned over you know, the unified kingdom, all the tri- tribes of Israel. After the death of David's son Solomon, the kingdom split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And God's people sinned. And they rebelled against God and his word, generation after generation after generation, until eventually in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. And then eventually, the remaining southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So Isaiah lived and prophesied before and through the 722 B.C. fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians. Okay, so with that in mind, look again at verse 1. Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the northernmost tribes of the northern kingdom. And Assyria attacked from the north. So they were the first to be invaded. So as commentator Del Ralph Davis puts it, when the boiling Assyrian pot spilled over, this area was first to be scalded. The Zebulun and Naphtali had apparently already suffered the onslaught of the brutal Assyrian army. And so think about what that meant. Not good news, right? Towns and villages located there would have been destroyed, people killed, people captured, even taken hundreds of miles from their homeland, from from their families. There was anguish and darkness and gloom everywhere. Okay, but look at verse 1 and listen to the prophetic promise that we have in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, so so pay attention here because this is tricky. Do you hear the contrast between in the former time, things that have already happened, with but in the latter time, things that are coming? 
Do you see that contrast? Do you hear that contrast? And the point being is that there's hope for the future. There's hope for the future. And the rest of this Isaiah 9 passage is about hope. It's about God's prophetic promise. It's about hope. But you'll notice that even though the verses to come are about coming hope, coming future hope, these verses are all written in the past tense. That's one of the things that makes this a little bit confusing to wrap our minds around. But everything, even about these, these coming promises, these coming prophetic promises, they're still to come, but they're written in the past tense. So listen to how Alec Motier explains this. The reason why is because this hope is sure. It's certain. Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7, is couched in past tenses. The future is written as something which has already happened. Isaiah says to us, look forward to it. It's certain. He's already done it. Those walking in the darkness can see the light ahead and are sustained by hope. As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they will live by. Let me read that again. As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they will live by. Are they to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, the dreams shattered, and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they to recall his past mercies, to remember his present promises, and to make great affirmations of faith? Isaiah insists here that that hope is a present reality, part of the constitution of the now. The darkness is true, but it's not the whole truth, and certainly not the fundamental truth. So consider that. The darkness is true. We know it's true. We know know it was true in Isaiah's day. We know it's true today. The darkness is true, but it's not the whole truth, and it's certainly not the fundamental truth. Okay, and we know that, but, but, but do we really know that? Do do you believe that it's not the whole truth? Do you really believe it's not the fundamental truth? Do you believe that? Please believe it. Dear Christian, never ever look at the darkness and the hopelessness and the dreams shattered and conclude that God has forgotten you. God never will and never can forget his people. You need to hear that. God never can and never will forget his promises. Put another way, God never can and never will forget you. You may forget him for a time, but he won't forget you. It will be utterly against his character to forget you. He never can, he never will. Do you believe this? Please, please believe this because this is true. Isaiah 9 begins with deep darkness, but there is the promise of light. And so that's our second heading, the light. And it's the light of God's promises, the light of God's prophetic promises. And we're going to see several prophetic promises going from verse 2 all the way to verse 6. Several prophetic promises. So, and look with me at Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness... On them has light shone. So the people were walking or living out their lives in darkness, in a land of deep darkness. But then there's the promise of a great light to come, 
A great light to come and a great light to, to burst forth. Do you see that? A great light to, a light to burst forth. A great light to come and shine on them. Notice that. It's a light that comes to them and that shines on them. It's not a light that, that comes from within them. It's a light that comes to them and that shines on them. And remember, now this, this is an Advent prophecy, an Advent passage, Christmas passage, which points us forward to the first Advent, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, taking on flesh, dwelling among us, beginning with his birth in the manger. And you see, a great light is promised to burst forth through the deep darkness. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute what is one of the main ways that we know that Advent is here? What's one of the clearest signs that Christmas is right around the corner? I mean, I know we have our calendars, but what's one of the clearest signs? The lights. That's exactly right. The lights. We see the lights. And whenever I'm driving home at night and I begin to see the lights, I know, all right, Richard, you're on the clock. You've got you to do some shopping. Whenever I see the lights coming home, I know I've got to make it a priority. And I'll, I'll never forget, I'll never forget driving here, here in town. Um, this, this was a long time ago. This was, you know, seven, six, seven years ago. And I was driving just with my son. You know, and, and he was just a little guy. You know, now he's, such a, now he's such a big guy. You know, this big, big 10-year-old. But I was driving with him, and I remember this time because... This was one of the few times I remember hearing him say something from the back seat. Because you know, he's got a lot of sisters. They do a lot of talking for him. And so we don't hear him a lot. Uh, but, but this is a time I heard him. And he spoke up. And his, where we were, was we were on Gessner Road. We were on Gessner, right by Memorial City Mall. And it was Advent. And he looked around out the window and he said, He said, Daddy, it looks like Christmas. You guys know what he saw. He saw all those trees, all those lights, and it does look like Christmas. It looks incredible. He said, Daddy, it looks like Christmas. So he, he knew that connection between Christmas and the lights. He said, Daddy, it looks like Christmas. But then he followed up with, and it makes me happy. That he knew this connection between Christmas, right, and this bursting forth of light, seeing the light, but also there's a connection not only between coming light and the coming Savior, but there's a connection between the coming light and coming joy. Coming joy and rejoicing and gladness. And that's exactly what we see in verse 3. Look with me at Isaiah 9, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so the you is God. And what does God promise to do? Now remember, it's, it's written in the past tense. God hasn't done this yet. He's, it's a prophetic promise of what he's going to do. But it's written in the past tense because it's so certain. God's going to do it. He, he will do it. And what does he promise to do? That he says first that he will multiply the nation. Multiply his people. Put another way, that God's people may be reduced down to only a small remnant reduced down to only a small remnant because of the Assyrians, because of the Babylonians who will come. But God will spread his light to more and more people. God will multiply his people, and God's people will have great joy. Do you see that? I mean, look at verse, 
3. The promise of Isaiah 9, 3 is that God's people will rejoice like workers at the harvest. They will rejoice like victorious soldiers dividing up the spoil, the spoils of war. You know, to, to use an analogy, they, they will rejoice like the Alabama fans after every single SEC championship game, after every one of them, rejoice. But there's more. Right? There's, there's a prophetic promise of the coming light, right? and, and it's wedded together with joy. But then we also see in verse 4, it's wedded together with deliverance. The light and joy and deliverance. So look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So let's think about this. The words yoke, burden, shoulder, oppressor, they seem to echo back to the Exodus. Echo back to that first Passover in the Exodus story and how God's people were liberated, set free, were delivered from slavery in Egypt, not through their own doing, but by a mighty act of God's grace on their behalf. That first Exodus. Okay, but, but then look at that last phrase of verse 4. And we see, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, Midian was not associated with that first exodus. And so what does that mean? And so I want you to put your thinking caps on, okay? Those of you who, you know, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, who, who is the great Old Testament hero who defeated Midian, who defeated the Midianites? Okay, I'll, I'll give you a hint. You read about him in the book of Judges, Judges 6 to 8. Name's Gideon. Gideon was an unlikely hero. And do you remember what happened? Gideon raised up a great army. He raised up a great army of 32,000 soldiers to fight against the Midianites. But then, but then God told Gideon, no, 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 no. I'm not going to deliver them over into your hand because that army's way too big. That army's way too big. With that kind of an army, if I deliver them into your hand, if I give you the victory, you won't believe that I gave you the victory. You will think, you will think that by your own hand, you saved yourself. You will think that you did it. You will miss that this is a mighty act of God, a mighty act of my grace for you. And so listen to what we read in Judges 7, beginning in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And so the Lord said, The army of 32,000 soldiers, that's way too many. And so the army was reduced down to 10,000. And then we read in Judges chapter 7, verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. And so the Lord had Gideon reduce his army of 10,000 soldiers down to only 300 soldiers. And then with those 300 soldiers, where it would be unmistakable if they were to, to win this victory, that the Lord gave them the victory, on top of that, the Lord gave Gideon really a strategy that you, no one could possibly think of. It had to come from the Lord. And here's what the strategy was. You remember what it was? That these 300 soldiers were to have their hands full, a trumpet in one hand and a torch, a lit torch in the other hand, but the torch was covered with a jar. 
It was lit but covered with a jar, and they were to sneak as close as they could to the outskirts of the Midianite camp in the middle of the night. And then whenever the signal was given, they were to blow the trumpets, they were to break the jars, and the lights of the torches would burst forth. And it would create such confusion. And that's what happened. They blew the trumpets, they broke the jars, light burst forth in the darkness in the middle of the night. The Midianites were, they were confused, terrified. And in their confusion, they end up slaughtering each other. They actually slaughtered each other, meaning that Gideon's victory over the Midianites was really just another mighty act of God, not utterly unlike the Exodus. See, in the Exodus, in the days of Gideon, the Lord delivered his people. The Lord fought their battles for them. Therefore, Isaiah 9 verse 4 is a prophetic promise that God will once again deliver his people. You, you see this? You see this theme? You see the point that neither, neither Moses, nor Gideon, nor you, nor me can say, my own hand has saved me. It was a mighty act of God's grace. And then we read in verse 5, not only is there the coming light and the coming joy and the coming freedom and deliverance, but there's this coming peace. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is not, not merely victory in battle. This is the end of all battles. See, every boot, every garment, and they're going to be burned as fuel for the fire. Why are they going to be burned? Because they're not needed anymore. The victory has been won. But do you notice that this victory is not the people's accomplishment? This victory is not our accomplishment. The point of verse 4, right, the echoes from the Exodus story and the clear reference back to Gideon is that we step on the battlefield after the victory has already been won. We step on the battlefield, the field of play, and all we do is celebrate. That God saves us by his grace. Or as Alec Motier puts it, the war is over. But the people have not fought the final battle. They have entered the battlefield only after the fighting is done. Okay, and so think about all of these prophetic promises in Isaiah 9, verse 2 to verse 5. There's the promise of the great light bursting forth, shining in the darkness. This great light that God sends, that's verse 2. Then there's the joy which God multiplies and increases in verse 3. Then there's the the, the deliverance, the liberation, the freedom which God brings about for his people in verse 4. And then there's the peace which God achieves for his people on their behalf in verse verse 5. And so how are we to understand these incredible prophetic promises? I mean, when, think about redemptive history. When, When did this light and this joy and this deliverance in this peace come to God's people. When? Or better yet, who? Who? And the answer is our third heading, the Son. And so look at Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And this is the same son that Juan Carlos preached about last Sunday. This is the same son from Isaiah 7, verse 14. Remember, there we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. That Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, 
he is the, this, the promised son who was given. This promised child who was born. And we're supposed to see that. We're supposed to see that Isaiah 9 is, is, about, is about Jesus. And the New Testament makes this unmistakable. Do you know that? I mean, think about, think about the, the early in the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Early in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 4, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, here's what we read. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay, now when was the last time you heard about Zebulun and Naphtali? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Okay, we've heard about this prophet Isaiah. Might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so you see what this means? The very region of the world, Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee, the very region of the world, which had been plunged into the, the deep darkness of the Assyrian invasion, the deep darkness and devastation from the Assyrians, the very region mentioned in the Isaiah 9 prophecy, that very region was also the first region of the world to see and to experience the light of Jesus teaching and preaching. So put another way, Jesus is the fulfillment of our Isaiah 9 passage. He is the child who was born. He is the son who was given. He's the great light sent into the dark world, the great light sent to, to burst forth. And it's not only in Matthew's gospel that we see this as clear. We also see it in John's gospel. Remember how the gospel of John begins? I know it's been a few years, but you guys know John well. Think about John 1, verses 4 and 5, speaking about Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then later in John 1, verses 9 to 13, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then later in John 8, verse 12, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, and so we're thinking about this darkness and light, these themes, and these, this, this, the fulfillment of these prophetic promises in Matthew 4, and in John 1, and in John 8. Okay, now look back, look back to Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And this is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And so what are, we, what are we to do with all this? How are we to think about this? Right, I mean, this is a Christmas passage, an Advent passage. So how are we to think about this, this, this Advent, this Christmas? Well, first, there's, there, there's bad news before we get to the good news. The bad news is the world is a dark place. The world is a dark place. That doesn't mean the world is as bad as it could be. 
But the world's a dark place, and I don't think I have to convince you guys of this. And this darkness that we see out in the world, okay, but it's not just darkness we see out in the world, it's darkness we see in here. It's darkness we see in, in here. And this darkness is not the way things are supposed to be. The world was not created to be a place of darkness. The world was not created to be filled with evil and violence and injustice and abuse of power and hopelessness and refugees fleeing oppression and women and children being trafficked and other untold suffering. Rather, the world was made dark by sin. And as you know, sin never makes things better. Sin never takes you where you want to go. Sin always ruins always ruins. You know, as, as James 1 tells us, sin gives birth to death. Sin always leads eventually to distress, darkness, and the gloom of anguish. The world's a dark place. And we're all very familiar with it. Okay, but the question is, well, what do we do about it? What, what can we do about it? I mean, how, how can we remove the darkness? Well, that's just it. You know, we don't remove darkness. Only light dispels darkness. Okay, so th this is a silly illustration, just the best I can come up with, so bear with me. Imagine you walk into a pitch black dark room, completely, completely dark, pitch black. You walk in, and, and let's pretend you're not thinking about, okay, turning on a light switch. You think, there's so much darkness in here. How do we get this darkness out? Well, it's not going to do you any good, as we know, to, to go grab a shovel and begin to shovel, try to shovel the darkness out or to, to sweep the darkness out or, or to round up a bunch of friends to, okay, come and get an armor load, guys. Let's get all this darkness out. Like, we know that that's not how it works, that the darkness must be dispelled, driven away by adding light. Now, that's the only way to remove, to dispel, to drive away the darkness is by adding light. And we can't work really hard to just to create our own light. You see, that's the point. That's the point of Isaiah 9. That we simply can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and decide, you know what, we're going to work really hard to forge our own way to a better future for our lives and for our world. You see, we do not naturally have the light within us. It must come to us and shine on us. See, look back again at Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The light does not come from within them. It doesn't come from within us. It comes to us, and it shines on us. You see, on the one hand, the message of Christmas is, things really are this bad. Apart from the light of Jesus Christ's work of salvation, we really are this bad. doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but we really are this bad. We're walking in deep darkness. We're walking in the deep darkness of our own sin. And the message of Christmas is things are, really are this bad. And if we look only to the culture around us, and we look only at human resources, and, and we try to pull ourselves up by the books, bootstraps and try to really try hard to make things better on our own, in our own strength, with our own resources, the darkness only grows worse. Things really are this bad, and we cannot fix things ourselves. As the Lord said to Gideon in Judges 7, 
Not one of us can say, my own hand has saved me. Not one of us can say, you know, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And because I'm better than average, my own hand has saved me. Not one of us can say, you know, my good deeds and, and, and my sweet actions and being nice and being well-intended can redeem my, my sin and my arrogance and my selfishness and my, my failures. All of those things that I, that I do and that I say and that I think that I feel guilty about, that I'm ashamed of. Not one of us can say, my own hand has saved me. See, on the one hand, the message of Christmas is, things really are this bad. On the other hand, the message of Christmas is, there's hope. There really is hope. See, we needed God to send the light, and God has sent the light. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. So then the last question is, well, how does this light become ours? Look again at Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, I checked seven different English translations of this verse, and every single one used the English word given. To us a son is given. A gift. That Jesus is a gift from God the Father to us. Jesus is a gift from God the Father to you. You see, the world is a dark, dark place. Full, full of ignorance about God and his word. Full of evil, full of wickedness, full of the misery of sin. But God loves this world. He really does. It's what we read about in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world... For God so loved the world that he gave, gift, given. God so loved the world that he gave, that a son is given, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, as, as many of you guys know, uh, you hear me talk about them a lot, Alicia and I have four wonderful, beautiful children, wonderful children. And, you know, and we suppose that we will give them Christmas presents this year. Uh, unless, unless, unless any of you oppose. And, you, know, you, you can just send me, send me some emails, see me, after, see me after church if you have some reasons why not. Be happy to listen to you. But I suppose we will give them some Christmas presents. And when we do, we're going to give them as gifts. Right? Of course. We're not going to raid their piggy banks and, and take what little money we can find. Some of them have more money than others. Some of them are better savers than others. But we're not going to take that money, and we're not going to make them pay for their own gifts. We're going to give them the presents as gifts that they didn't earn and that they don't deserve. Why? Because we love them. Because we love them, and we delight to give them gifts. The light, salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the peace with God that Jesus accomplishes for all who trust in him, it's a gift. It's the true Christmas gift. It's a gift of pure grace. Grace is always unmerited, unearned, undeserved. You can't earn it. You don't have to earn it. Jesus paid for it. He paid for it in full with his life, his death, and his resurrection. He paid for it in full with his, with his sinless, perfect life, with his atoning, sacrificial death, the resurrection from the grave. 
And so one of the biggest challenges to this Christmas gift is that it's a gift that makes us swallow our pride to receive. That we realize that that we, we need his atoning death, the shedding of his blood to wash us clean from our sin, to remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. But not only do we need his atoning death to wash us clean from our sin, we need his righteous life. His righteous life, after after we are washed clean in his shed blood, then God the Father credits to us Jesus Christ's righteousness. After we are washed clean from from the guilt and the shame and the corruption of our sin, after we are washed clean, then God the Father clothes us in Jesus' robes of righteousness. And we need the resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead to raise us from our state of spiritual death, to give us new birth, new hearts, new power to walk in newness of life. See, Christmas means apart from this salvation, this salvation Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves from the deep darkness in our own hearts that nothing less than the life and death of the Son of God could save us. And to receive the true Christmas gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, we have to admit that we are sinners, that we are in need of grace. And we have to believe what we read in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Do you believe that? Will you believe it? And what if you change the pronouns from us to me? For to me a child is born. To me, a son is given. You see, this table before us preaches this very message to us, that the bread represents Jesus' body given for you, and the cup represents Jesus' blood shed and given for you. For for to me, a child is born. For to me, a son is given. Do you believe that? Will you believe that this Christmas? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the the stunning clarity of your word and how these prophetic promises from what we call the Old Testament are so clearly fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that that we would understand this this message of Christmas. That while the, the world is a dark place, the light has come, the light of the world has come. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And may may every man, woman, and child in this sanctuary believe, really believe, trust. For to me, a child is born. And to me, even to a sinner like me, a son is given. A son is given to purchase my salvation with his life, death, and resurrection. Now, Father, please hear our silent prayers to you as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table.